And if you end every day feeling like you can't win, <laughs> that you're not being the parent you want to be or that you're not being the professional that you want to be, that's not on you. That's on society. That's what we are all feeling. And so I think step one is recognizing that you are a powerful individual. There is no one more powerful, in my opinion, than parent. Um, and you are part of a collective experience right now. So take that burden off your shoulders um, and again, put it where it belongs, which is on society. I'm Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools and your host for Work Like a Mother, a podcast dedicated to real conversations with incredible women juggling work, life, and motherhood. Today, I'm delighted to sit down with Sarah Siegel Muncie and Lauren Birchfield Kennedy, co-founders of Neighborhood Villages, a nonprofit working to realize a future for everyone in which all families have access to affordable, high-quality early education and care. Neighborhood Villages advocates for policy reform and implements innovative, scalable solutions that address the biggest challenges facing early education and care providers and the families who rely on them. The other day, we were in that mad rush from daycare pickup to dinner to bed. And I looked over at Dave and I said, another day is almost over. He shot back. You mean we've almost survived another day? The daily struggles of working parents existed long before the pandemic, but now it's impossible to ignore them. We're so inspired by our friends over at Neighborhood Villages for partnering with Kristen Bell and Gloria Riviera to launch the No One Is Coming To Save Us podcast. It's a four-part series that breaks down how we're all breaking down, parents, teachers, childcare providers, and how we can get ourselves out of it now because we can't afford to wait. Thank you so, so much to both of you for being here with me on Work Like a Mother. I'm really, really excited to be able to speak with both of you. Thanks for having us. Thrilled to be here. So I thought it would be a good place to start to have you share a little bit about Neighborhood Villages and how it came to be. So Sarah and I uh, got to know each other through a mutual friend, and we both had babies right about the same time, so started to spend a lot of time together uh, with very young babies born in December into the depths mm. of the Boston winter. So I think eventually, you know, Google Maps or Waze would identify Sarah's house as like my work because it was the second place I lived in addition to my house and, and vice versa. Uh, and while we were, you know, nursing our little babies, changing diapers, um, started talking about childcare and it was my first child. Um, so I didn't know what the sort of locomotive was that was about to <laughs> hit me straight on and just had this sort of mutual feeling that it shouldn't be like this anymore. We shouldn't be putting this burden on families and particularly on women to figure out how you work and keep a roof over your head and care for your child at the same time. And like, God forbid, you actually get to have a good time <laughs> doing it, parent, you know, with, with joy and not stress. And so we just said, like, well, what if we rolled up our sleeves and jumped in and got involved? And so we launched Neighborhood Villages with 
the purpose of doing policy work to really run straight at the childcare crisis and advocate for policy reforms that need to happen, um, but also start the work. Because we don't have time to wait anymore. We don't even have time for bills to become laws. We need to start the work right now. And so the, the other element of neighborhood villages um, is we dive into the field, we partner with pre-existing early education and care partners, and we invest in them and start to build the delivery system that we want to see and a system that actually works for families uh, and also for providers and for educators. How do you divvy up the monumental amount of work that you are trying to accomplish between the two of you? Well, the first thing we do is that we underestimate how long it'll take and how hard it is. And that's like an important part of our ethos is that everything we see that's like an obstacle, if we know that a solution's there, we're like, we can do that. Totally. It won't even like be that hard. We can do it. Um, And that's really important because it is really hard. (laughs) But um, first we look at every problem as solvable, which is like, um, I find a very mom thing and a very provider thing, childcare providers, like, and teachers, um, don't, if the toilet floods, you don't get to like sit around and agonize about what the best way might be to systemically fix the plan. No, you like, you have to just fix it. Um, and so, we were coming from a very different space of um, this is on fire. This is urgent. This is hurting us in every single part of our society. It's hurting kids. It's hurting businesses. It's hurting our military. It's hurting everyone. <laughs> so um, I think that was like the, mo- the most unifying thing is that we both approach it that way of like, if it's solvable, then we will put on blinders. Um, but I do more of the um, what I call like the last mile work. Um, so I try to like get the thing that helps the providers or family to them because it's often stuck one step away. Mm. Um, so I do a lot of the, our kind of program design work. Um, and Lauren, do you have an example of that, Sarah? One example is testing. Um, when programs were being asked to go right back, um, no one was agonizing about whether it was safe for childcare providers to be back in the classroom pre-vaccine the way that they did for K-12 teachers. So neighborhood villages decided that we would fix that because it was unfair. And it was also going to cause programs to close. Everyone who had a sniffle or a cough was out for six days. Like you can't sustain that in an already broken market. So we came up with a really elegant testing solution. And we keep asking providers and people who know them, (laughs) if it's a good one. And we keep testing it on people and trying it. Um, And so that's a small example, but to a program that's huge. And that's what a school district does. They don't have that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, that's an example of a place where testing, food provision, diapers, um, family navigation services, sharing information about how to keep people housed, um, all of that is possible within a child care center um, or a family child care home. Like you can connect people better there than anywhere else. And really try to put the provider, or the educator or the family at the center of the design. And so to step back and ask ourselves, okay, if we're talking about operations, 
Sarah was giving the example, right? If the pipe bursts, how would a provider address it? And what would the provider need in order to address it more effectively within the context of the whole school, mm-hmm. right? So optimally, it's not your head of school who's fixing that pipe. You have administrative support, you have operation support, so that center director can stay in the classroom with teachers, continuously investing in their instructional growth and the quality of the programming because it's somebody else's job to do the other stuff. So if we can put that at the center of design, we can end up with a neighborhood network or an entire childcare system that says, do you know what would create a really high functioning school that delivered really high quality programming? Okay, we don't pretend that a center director should do all the jobs. We give them the resources they need to hire for the same administrative and operations staff as an elementary school would have. And I think another example of really putting the family at the center of this um, is also recognizing the incredible opportunity that early education and care providers um, have to really make a difference in the lives of these families, that our early education and care system, um, yes, it will deliver incredible education. Yes, it will deliver incredible care when we fix it. It could also deliver really phenomenal wraparound supports for families, because what is very, very unique about the early education and care setting is that you don't just know the child, which in sort of a K-12, right, you, you mostly know that third grader not necessarily their parents. In early education and care, you know mom, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know dad, maybe you know grandma at a very, very, very deep level because you cannot separate a three-month-old from their parent. And so because of that, what we've seen at Neighborhood Villages is if you put the family at the center and you equip the childcare provider to have the resources and the capacity to meet those full-scope needs of families, we can create a really seamless experience for families where housing is interlocking with nutrition, is interlocking with your employment um, skills or opportunities. Because from a family's perspective, you don't experience housing separate Mm -hmm. from nutrition. But in society, we ask you to go to two very different siloed places to fix those needs. At a childcare center, a family could source all those supports all in one place in a way that actually reflects the lived experience of a parent with a really young child who doesn't have the time um, to get on three different buses or the green line and then the red line in the middle of February with a six-month-old and a four-year-old and try to make it work. We can do better for those families if we were to put them at the center of design. And that's really what Neighborhood Villages seeks to do. Well, your passion just is coming through so strong for the work that you do each and every day. And I was really excited to learn about one of your newest projects, the No One Is Coming to Save Us podcast. Can you tell us a bit more about how that came to be? Yeah, I think um, No One Is Coming to Save Us is sort of our ethos which is that, um, and that's also, I think, a very scrappy mom thing, which is that, like, I'm ultimately going to have to fix this. Mm -hmm. Um, So that uh, sort of drives a lot of what we do, that, like, if we want a real childcare system, people need to understand the issue, both the simplicity of the issue and the complicated parts, some. But people need a vocabulary. People need to know that they're part of a movement, 
They need to know the history of this issue. And they need to know that it's okay to articulate this need. That like, we don't have to silently just get through these five years and then pretend they didn't happen. Mm -hmm. We need to fix this because our moms went through it and our daughters are going to go through it because no one's coming to save us. And what we thought was so uh, exciting about using a podcast as a way to tell this story was so that we could make it really accessible to anyone, right? Uh, people are really proximate to this issue right now. Not probably as many people have time to go to sit and listen to a panel of experts. It's also maybe not what you want to do with your 30 minutes of quiet time between when you put a screaming child to bed and when you have to put yourself to bed because you're going to be woken up at two in the morning. Um, but if you have something, you know, that's raw and emotional, but also funny to listen to, is that a way to engage, um, in a manner that that feels a lot more accessible and that makes you feel empowered to act. I think that's what really sets this podcast apart is it's not just a diagnosis of the problem. It, we're living it, all of us now. Um, we sort of in our heart of hearts know what the root problems are. Um, so we're really using this podcast to shine a light on what we can do. How do we save ourselves? What is something that any one of us can do, whether you are working in the White House right now with the Biden administration, or you are sitting on your couch, um, staring off into the abyss because you tried to work while your you know, five-year-old was bouncing off the walls and ran into your Zoom conference without wearing any pants, right? What all of our kids have all done um, once or twice this pandemic. Um, and to really drive home that every single one of us can be an agent of change to really drive home, as Sarah was saying, that we know what we want, we know what we need, and we're not afraid to ask for it mm -hmm. anymore. And we know who to ask, and we know where to go, and we know what to do. That's really what we're excited um, to, to sort of use this podcast, both as a storytelling device, um, but also as a way to empower people to really join the movement um, for universal affordable childcare. Um, because we don't want our daughters to have to go through this. And we have probably in this moment are more proximate to the issue than we have been in quite literally 50 years when we almost got affordable universal childcare passed by Congress. Um, but we could do it now because every single family has been impacted this by this and uh, it shouldn't be this way anymore. And we have some really good folks helping us tell this story or doing the bulk of the storytelling on the podcast with Gloria Riviera, who's incredible and does an incredible job of taking the listener kind of through this issue um, in a very not boring um, and riveting way. Um, and we have one other special correspondent too. We got um, the phenomenal actress, Kristen Bell, um, to be a, a special call it like it is correspondent. So again, you know, Kristen telling you all of the, the different, you know, problems, all the different solutions, all the different ways you can get involved. It's a lot more fun to listen to her, you know, than it is to me. So we're super excited to have her a, a part of this project. Um, and the, the producers, Lemonada Media are just um, fabulous. They really are masters of taking the art of storytelling and zooming in on one person's lived experience as a way to really then take a step back and address the larger issue, but break it down in a way that each one of us feels like we can understand it and we can engage around that. 
Well, even in the intro, I went from like tears to laughter within about 30 seconds as Gloria is like tugging at my heartstrings with her story. And then Kristen is making um, a, a joke in some ways of saying basically before the age of five, no one cares about you. You don't exist in this country and no one cares. And so it is such, uh, seems like it's going to be such incredible storytelling to tell this important story that needs to be told. Why were they the perfect partners to work on for this project? And what was it like working with them on it? It's been a ton of fun. I'll say that. This is, um, I don't know, one of the, the few creative things that I've gotten to do over the last hundred years. Um, but we were connected with them through a mutual colleague and it was sort of, I think, a, a love at first sight type of um, brainstorming about what the show could be. We had had the opportunity to listen to a number of their other shows, uh, mm -hmm. Last Day, uh, The Untold Story, um, and to, again, really hear how skilled they are at taking these really complex social issues, right? These things where you sort of step back and say, well, how could I possibly boil the ocean? This problem mm -hmm. is too big to fix and make it very clear that it is fixable. And here's one step you could take today. Um, in order, you know, in order to, to help be a part of the solution. And I think for about five, six months now, you know, we've been on all of the different kind of editorial and production calls, helping the story come together, bringing experts to the table. Um, and it's just really been a fantastic partnership. Amazing. Um, you've mentioned now in our conversation today and in so many of your interviews, how the system is broken, how our childcare system is just completely broken. What does that mean to you? What's broken about it? Um, at its core, um, it is a, the system is a disparate set of providers doing the very, very, very best they can in a, um, with a product that costs more than they can charge for it. They are being asked to be CPAs and magicians and facilities experts and all of these things, and then blamed sort of when the financial model doesn't work. There's no profit to be made. It's a public good. And at its very core, that's what's broken about the system is that we're treating it like it's just that nobody's done it right yet. Everybody's doing it right. It's working the best it can work. It sucks. This isn't how it should be. It's too complicated. We're taking all the money we have and we're spending it in these like little ways all over the place. Um, and what we need to do is stop because there are other sectors and within our sector itself, the answers are there on how you take these separate providers in different settings and you make them part of a high quality state or nationwide system where everybody has the same access to safety, to good facilities, to teachers who are not so stressed out because they make enough money and they can live close to where they work. And we need to connect schools and providers into a system that built, builds around them so that they can lift up and deeply know children and families. 
And I think what I would add to that is, is, well, what does it take to do that? And there's only one answer, and that's public funds. There is only one answer to fixing this problem. And that is if we, we've always known, but we've just ignored that it's a public good. The pandemic, right, blew the roof off of this whole thing and said, okay, nobody's allowed to at least sort of like put your fingers in your ears and, and say, la, 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 no, it's not true. Um, all our eyeballs see it, all our ears hear it, right? All of our hearts have broken <laughs> over the last year um, because of what we've been through. This is a public good. So it's time to treat it that way. Stop treating it as what it is, which right now is a, is a private market of small business owners. And then that's great, right? We should keep our mixed delivery system. We should keep our, our business um, operators going, but we need to support them. We need to, to take what we have and turn it into a public good. And that requires public money. Because as Sarah was saying, okay, so, so why is the market so broken right now? It's because it's undercapitalized. It costs a lot of money to offer really high quality childcare. You need a lot of adults to keep those kids safe. You need a lot of adults to make sure that each child is being nurtured and educated. Um, to have really good adults, you need to pay them. So when it all adds up, right, I think in Massachusetts, our estimation is that for really high quality care, the true cost of quality is about $40,000 for an infant. But a family can't pay that. And so what happens? The provider has to reduce the cost that they can charge a family because their only way of bringing in income is through tuition paid by families. And so in Massachusetts, we see an average cost of infant care at about $20,000, more than in-state college tuition. $20,000 results in two things. It locks out too many families because they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it requires paying our teachers little more than minimum wage. It's not working for anybody. It's not working for that family who can't afford the care solutions they need. It's not working for their child who's being denied access at all to early learning not working for the provider who's trying to just figure out how to keep their doors open. And it's not working for the educator who is probably in this work because they love kids and they are passionate about it, but can't afford to stay in it because they are paid so little. That's what we have now in recognition that this is a public good. It's time to change that. Wrap around the providers we have wrap around our mixed delivery system and give it the public financing it needs to thrive. Public dollars to reduce the cost of access for families to make it more affordable for families. Um, but that's not it. We also need public dollars that go and invest directly into our childcare providers so that they can have a more stable business model, so that they have the funds they need to actually cover the operating costs associated with paying their educators more, with investing in their facilities, with being able to right, outfit your classrooms with everything that a child should have when they go into these learning environments. That takes a lot of money. That money is the responsibility of government and society. It's time to take it off the backs of children. It's time to take it off the backs of educators and to put it where it belongs which is a social responsibility to make good on our public good and make sure that all families have access to high quality early education and care. I love the urgency that you both bring to this conversation. And, and as you talk about 
this being the moment to change things, what can people do? What is it that people, mothers, families, grandparents, all the people that you were naming who are so impacted by this, what, what can we do? There are so many different ways to answer that question and so many different ways to get involved. And I think at that, the almost sort of closest to home, right, is recognizing that if you end every day feeling like you can't win, <laughs> that you're not being the parent you want to be or that you're not being the professional that you want to be, that's not on you. That's on society. That's what we are all feeling. And so I think step one is recognizing that you are a powerful individual. There is no one more powerful, in my opinion, than parent. Um, and you are part of a collective experience right now. So take that burden off your shoulders. Um, and again, put it where it belongs, which is on ourselves as a society. Step one. Step two is tell your story. Start talking about it with other people. Um, it could be your story that changes somebody else's life or perspective or interest in getting involved. And that can be anything from tweeting, right? To a Facebook group, to talking with your friends. As you do that, right? Some will have more time to, to get engaged. Some will say like, I'm up to my ears in twins right now who are 18 months old. I'm sorry, you know, talking about it is the best I can do. That's awesome. Keep doing it, keep talking it, keep using your voice and make the friends who do have some more time connect with some of the change-making things that may be going on in your community, in your state, across the country. All right, so sort of like policy advocacy, that's not your thing, that's fine. I have more things for you to do. Uh, you, can, <laughs> you can be a change agent in your place of business. Start talking about it with your different colleagues, right? For women, we got pay equity because we finally started talking about um, you know, the BS of not being paid enough for the value of our work. Start talking about childcare with your colleagues. Come together and bring it to your employer and say, we need either a more flexible work environment because, hey, we've all got kids and we're not going to keep that a secret anymore. Um, or, hey, we want to have a serious conversation about our HR benefits. We're, you know, we have health insurance on the table. It's awesome. You know, maybe we have paid leave on the table. That's awesome. We want to add childcare. We'd really like to have a more supportive work environment about helping make childcare more affordable for us so that we can show up on the job and be our best selves and our most productive selves for you. So many different ways, something for everybody. Um, and definitely, you know, if advocacy is your thing, huge moment right now in Massachusetts to get involved. And I think one other thing that we can all do together, um, and I think it's happening organically is stop hiding our children. <clears throat> and that's really important. Like one thing that I'm not always like, I don't like conflict. I don't like to say awkward things, but like, I think I'm finally learning to say like, I can't make that meeting. So it should be at a different time. Right. Not so I don't go to the meeting and participate in that thought partnership that you're talking about. Those kinds of little things are really important and people hear you and they see you. And so when other people in your organization see that, they think I can do that. I don't have to skip the meeting. Next time I can say, it doesn't work for me, moving on. I think if we start saying, that's when I pick up my daughter, <laughs> that helps. If we can get to a point where you're allowed to be a parent 
and be partner at a law firm. But we have to articulate that because we've been really, really taught to hide it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've been taught that when we hide it and we do everything well, we're like good girls and boys. Um, but that's hard to shake, but we have to shake it. We have to start telling people, no, I have a four-year-old, so I have to do this. So you've touched on this a little bit in all of your stories so far, but how has your work informed your motherhood and the flip side, how has your motherhood informed your work? Well, the dawning realization of the what my life was going to look like as I pieced together going back after my second daughter was really what kind of made me think like, I can do this, I guess, but I'm really well-resourced. I have a partner who's here, all this stuff. It's awful, even in that situation. Um, so I think a big part of Um, motherhood being really universally hard is really important because it makes you think like, oh my God, I'm, I'm falling apart, which is okay. But imagine if I were, and you start thinking like, wow, this doesn't work for literally anyone. I try to remember that like, uh, my kids are five and seven now. So I'm just out of the like really hard part. But I try to remember that like, me doing the really hard part in silence hurts everyone. I think for me, motherhood definitely in, informed the the passion to bring to this. As Sarah just said it so beautifully, well, I am a sort of incredibly privileged. I have a responsibility to voice that this is still a ridiculous experience for me. And so if it is a horrible experience for me, the hell are we asking other people to go through? Mm -hmm. And to use my privilege to create platforms for those people to stand on and say, hear me, look at me and address what I'm going through. The the other element of it is, again, just like to keep quoting Sarah, is there's nothing that a mom can't figure out how to do because we have to figure out how to do it. So whether that applies to whatever's going on in your house in any given moment um, or an entire childcare system is put it in our hands because we will figure this out. There's an urgency to it. There's the ridiculousness of it. And there's the absolute simplicity of knowing the answer and saying, all right, what do I need to do to wrest this away from me. I'm done trying to convince you. So just give me the mic, give me the tools, not me personally, moms of the United States of America, um, to just do the damn thing because it's it's time. And you know, how has the work informed my motherhood? I think is you know a, a really good question that probably I'd need to like spend the next two years thinking of because I'm not particularly good at doing a lot of self-reflection. Um, but honestly, I, I think it has put into a new perspective my own need to draw boundaries between work and motherhood. And what has, you know, the pandemic sort of put us all through is also a realization um, that when you lose control over everything, um, it can be an opportunity to reset. So if I recognize that, oh my, you know, I'm like work is burning me out to a point where I, I want to be more present with my kids. and I can't, I don't have to hide that. 
I'm going to, as Sarah said, not do the meeting at five. I'm going to do the meeting at two so that my day can end earlier so that I can be the parent that I, I want to be um, because I'm going to demand that that's just as much of a priority in my life as, as work. Um, that is very much a work in progress, um, but I hope that, <laughs> that that will be something that um, I can continue to refine because I think prior to being able to, to co-found neighborhood villages, um, I definitely struggled um, with, with voicing that the parenting was just as much, if not more important um, than the work to my professional community. So you've shared so many outstanding pieces of advice. I have learned so much from you through this conversation. I have one more ask of you. We have a lot of listeners who are expecting their first baby. So I'm going to ask you to go back in time, rewind the clock. What advice would you give to your pre-mom self? Don't agonize about it unless it makes you feel better to agonize about it. Whatever the little thing is, if you want to like obsess about a diaper wipes warmer and what whatever, if you want to, great. If you think you have to, don't worry about that. And um, the other advice I would give that person is um, that it doesn't have to look like Instagram. And even though you know that, you're going to feel like it should. And always get a drink before you start breastfeeding. Like get your water first. That's it. <laughs> and I, I think mine would be similar, which is just give yourself grace, particularly with that, that new baby. Mistakes are part of becoming a parent. Um, and there is no right way to do it. There is the right way for you and for your child. And also that if you need help and you need community, ask for it. Tell, tell the one person, tell just the one person around you, I need help. Because again, we, we pretend like moms should just be able to somewhere between like know how to do it or gut through it. And we, we shouldn't carry that on our own shoulders. And we certainly shouldn't be um, creating that, that environment for, for others. So if you need help, call somebody, cry, <laughs> ask for it. Um, because the second you do, you will have arms wrapped around you. People want to be there for you. People want to help you raise your child at the heart of this. We as humans, we want to be with each other. We want community. We've just somehow created this twisted experience for moms right now where we feel so on our own and you're not. It's not even natural to like, like we can't even like biologically just like be alone with an, in nobody's supposed to be alone with an infant all day. That's like not how humans are meant to be. <laughs> so I think it's always important to remember that, that like you don't have to just, even if Lauren and I like just sat on couches together, feeding our babies and talking and then feeding our babies again. And then they'd like cry and then eventually we'd feed our babies again. <laughs> but that's like the most important thing is, to the togetherness. 
I appreciate you really sharing all of this with me, all of this with our listeners. It is absolutely fantastic to have you both here. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us and for all the incredible work that you do. Work Like a Mother is produced by Neighbor Schools. Neighbor Schools is a startup in Boston that I co-founded in 2018 to help parents find daycare. As a first-time parent, finding childcare can feel scary and intimidating. At Neighbor Schools, we help you find daycare you'll feel really good about so you can go back to work with the peace of mind that your little one is getting the socialization, support, and stimulation they need to learn and grow. We've helped thousands of moms and dads figure out the daycare search. Check us out at neighborschools.com. And when you get in touch, mention that you discovered us on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next time.